So welcome everybody. We're pleased to uh, present with, to present to you tonight um, Rabbi <coughs> Mendel Kessin. Um, tonight's Shi'ur has a few dedications. Number one, uh, Michael and Tehila Rose. This is in the honor of their 10th spiritual Aliyah anniversary to Israel, as well as their fifth wedding anniversary, Mazal Tov, which took place in August. Also, they wanted to just add that not only today, but they believe so many other people are awed by the rabbi's capacity to take the world events and plug them into his profound Torah framework and eagerness to want to share these and penetrate the Torah and out-of-the-box worldly insights with us. Thank you very much, Rabbi. And may the Shiach come this, this coming new year, and may peace prevail in Israel, the Middle East, and globally. Amen. Uh, also, in lo loving memory of Rabbi Yosef David Ben Menachem Shalom Chaim Zev, Halbring, Halfinger, Halbinger, he happens to have been buried today, should have Elias Neshama, Tekalia Freyla, Bas Hinda, and Yaakov Pressman, also Hinda. Kayla Freyla, Bas Hinda and Yaakov Pressman, also passed away very recently, at least Neshama, as well as for Sarah Bas Leib Grosswald. She passed away on the second day of Rosh Hashanah a few years ago. And to the continued Rav Shalema, Rav Chaim Aryeh Ben Rivka, that's our dear <coughs> friend Harvey Kasdan, triple bypass surgery, and is uh, recuperating quite nicely. And so I will continue before Shalema. And to Rachel Bat Elka and Ilana Batsara and Mendel Ela Ben Ela Bat Freda Miriam. Rosh Hashanah, one would imagine that it's really really easy to understand what it is. You know, if I asked anybody what's Rosh Hashanah about, I imagine everybody or most people would say, <clears throat> well, it's a time of judgment. Time of judgment uh, for persons of various sins. And um, that's probably what they would say. That it certainly is a judgment period. However, as we will see, that's not really, although obviously judgment goes on, but that's not really what's called the Pnimiyut of Rosh Hashanah. It's much greater than that. And that's what really what I want to speak about tonight, is to give you a feel of what's really going on at uh, Rosh Hashanah and how, therefore, how to approach it, how each person should therefore be able to approach it. And that's really what I want to do tonight. Uh, in a certain sense, it's a second part of uh, tshuva, because obviously the two weeks ago I spoke about tshuva. And today I speak about, you know, <clears throat> the proper time, although it's always proper to do tshuva, what tshuva means on Rosh Hashanah, what the significance really. So therefore, as such, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to ask a series of questions that will highlight the problems with Rosh Hashanah. Problems in the sense that we don't really understand what Rosh Hashanah is. Not yet, anyway, you know. And I'm going to show you the, the uh, questions, uh, and that will dramatize 
really, you know, how off the mark we really are. So the first question I would ask, Amen. The first question I would ask is what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? And like I said, most people think it's a judgment period when of course you are judged and uh, you know you are held accountable for what you did. But that's not really accurate, although it is true. But that is far from the real understanding of what Rosh Hashanah is. But it's a question, what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? Uh, second question. We know that every Jewish event, or I should say every Jewish holiday, corresponds to a Jewish event. In fact, usually the Jewish event is what, uh, you know, created the need for the Jewish holiday. For instance, you know, Pesach, we know the Jews were released, were freed from Egypt, and therefore we have the holiday called Pesach, right? Shavuos, Matan Torah. The Torah was given on Shavuos, and therefore we have, of course, the Yom Tov of Shavuos. Sukkot, same idea. It's an argument what the historical event was uh, between uh, the Tanoim and so on. But again, even Sukkot has a historical event that precedes it and perhaps even causes it. Now we also have Yom Kippur, if you remember two weeks ago, because the historical event is that God forgave the Jews for the sin of the golden calf, and that day was, of course, Yom Kippur. <clears throat> so that is the historical event that precedes Yom Kippur and so on. And you have Hanukkah, okay, those are mid mid Rabbanim, rabbinical, but still, you have Hanukkah with the Greeks, Purim, of course, is Akashverosh, uh, right, and so on, you know. <clears throat> But when you ask yourself, well, what about Rosh Hashanah? What is the reason for Rosh Hashanah? You all of a sudden realize, hey, there's no Jewish event from Rosh Hashanah, really. I mean, we know Adam was created on Rosh Hashanah, right? But Adam is not Jewish, so we can't say it's a Jewish event that causes Rosh Hashanah, you see. <clears throat> and not only that, what does the judgment day on Rosh Hashanah have to do with the creation of Adam? See, so not only is there a historical event which is lacking, even if you connect the two, it still doesn't answer the question. What does one have to do with the other? So that's a second question. What is the historical Jewish event that corresponds to Rosh Hashanah? Another question. That we know that everything is judged. Everything on the earth is judged. The universe is judged. Malachim are judged. Everything is judged, you see. So the question is, why would that be so? Because they don't have any Bechira. Animals are judged, right? But animals have no free will. If they have no free will, then they obviously are not held accountable. They're not guilty of anything. They follow their nature that God gave them, you see. So if that's the case, right, why is everything judged? Humans, I can understand, because humans have free will. But most things in the world have no free will. So the question, of course, is they're not accountable, they haven't sinned. So what does judgment mean when we talk about anything else besides human beings? That's also a very difficult question. <clears throat> Imagine 
that if, uh, if, the, if the New York City, let's say, they would close all the courts for an entire year, and it's only, the courts are only opened one day a year, could you imagine what would happen in New York? Everybody would be committing crimes every day because there's no judgment going on except that one day. So it's very hard to understand. What do you mean there's a judgment day? What about every day of the year, you see? And does it make sense that there should be a judgment day once in the year? Of course not. Every day people sin and they do bad things. So there should be some type of accounting every day of the year. So what does it mean that there's a judgment day, Rosh Hashanah, one day in the year? What does that mean? Why is that? Because, like I said, it doesn't really make sense. Also, a judgment day does not necessarily have to be on Rosh Hashanah, right? You can have a, a day of judgment any day of the year. It doesn't have to be on Rosh Hashanah. In fact, there are other judgment days during the year which obviously are not on Rosh Hashanah. For instance, uh, Sukkot, the world is judged in terms of the, the quantity of water available on Sukkot, you see. And produce you have on Pesach and, uh, and so on, you see. So therefore, there are other, other judgment days. So why does judgment of mankind have to be, or people, on Rosh Hashanah, you see? And also the question is, what's the difference then? If there, are other, if there are other judgment days, then the question, of course, is, well, what's the difference? Besides that, there's another question. And this question is really very difficult to answer. <clears throat> Imagine somebody's being tried for life or death, right? which is a very serious charge, he goes to court, and of course, he's filled with fear and anxiety because his life, his life is on the line. What happens after the court session? He goes home and he celebrates. It's a holiday, right? He puts his best food out, his dishes. It's a yomtev. Does this make sense? No. Nobody who's being tried for life and death would make that a holiday. Obviously not. But if you look in the average Jew's home on Rosh Hashanah, everybody's home and celebrating. What do you mean? You're about to be judged if you will live or die. And not only that, but the whole quality of your life is being judged. That's the case. How do you go home and have a whole, a whole holiday? You go home, you make Kiddush, right? eat bread, eat, eat uh, you know, um, meat and wine. It's a whole ce a celebration. You know, would anybody ever think that there's a judgment of life and death going on? In other words, the conduct in the house at the meal is completely contrary to what the day is. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because it would never happen in real life. In fact, if you looked at that, you'd say it's impossible for a judgment event of life and death to go on. It's impossible. Just look at the behavior of these people. They don't look worried. They don't look very concerned. Not only that, they're celebrating with great food. There's something that doesn't add up here, you see. So if Hashanah is really that day of judgment, then how do we understand people celebrating on Rosh Hashanah?
<coughs> so that is a question. Not only that, but the angels, there's a medrash that says that the angels, the malachim, said to God, well, if everybody's so happy, you know, so why not say halal? Why not say halal on Rosh Hashanah? Because everybody's celebrating, right? So what's the point, right? Just say halal. Because we say halal on a tremendous uh, occasion of thanksgiving. You see, when we praise God, like the first two nights of Pesach, we say halal at night because of the redemption from Egypt. So the Malachim say, well, let's say halal. So God says, well, you got a point. However, since the Jews are being judged, life and death, or the whole world is life and death and so on, so therefore it's not appropriate that they should say halal. Uh, so the question is, what are the angels talking about? What God told them is quite obvious, you see. So the question is, what's the dialogue here? What are the angels saying? And what is really God answering, you see? Uh, and what the angels are really saying, they're taking their cue from the fact that everybody's <clears throat> celebrating. So we might as well say halal. You know, and the angels don't know that, pe that the people are being judged. Of course they know that. So what are they even suggesting? That is the question. I mean, we take a look at what's happening here. It's question after question, right? It just doesn't add up. It's a complete contradiction to Rosh Hashanah. All of these questions. Besides that, we see Malchus in Musaf, we say Psukhmo verses that are Malchus, verses that refer to God, God as king. Then Zichroinois, we refer to God asking him to remember the good deeds of our ancestors. And we say Shoiforas, also verses of Psukhmo that refer to the Shoifor. Why is that? And why is that the order? Uh, on Rosh Hashanah, you see. Then we come to one of the most mysterious questions of all. Can anybody tell me why we blow shofar? What is that supposed to do for us? You know? What is that, a musical interlude? Is this what it is? Like, what does shofar have to do with this? That's the question. Why do we blow shofar? And we all feel this, uh, you know, uh, there's, uh, Rav Sadiqon, for instance, gives different reasons why. You know, maybe it's also to wake us up. It's a shofar. It gets us to be more aware of what's happening. It also reminds us of Matan Torah. When the Torah was given, the shofar was blown. So that's true. But I think we all have a feeling there's something else going on here. Much more mystical in terms of what a shofar really does. And shofar happens to be, right, the real mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. That is the mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. Which is interesting. You know, if you want to say, well, what's the only mitzvah really that God wants in Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is shofar. You know, we're not even talking about prayers and all that, although there is obviously necessity for prayers. But how does a shofar contribute to the whole idea? That is the question. See? Then we have other questions also. It says that when the shofar is blown, that the sultan gets very confused, you see, very confused, you know. And it's Ma'arbev, the sultan, confuses him. The question is why? The sultan has been around for thousands of years, you see. And he knows that on every Aleph Tishrei, right, they're going to blow the shofar. 
I would imagine he's figured it out by now, right? I mean, he has an incredible IQ. So what is he, what, what do you mean he's, he's confounded about the fact that the Jews built Jofra on Rosh Hashanah? Why is that? You see, so that's, uh, again, it's, a, it's another question, you know? You know? And we have the concept also, well, if you remember the psukim, you see the psukim before we blow shofar, the first letter of each, the six verses, it says, Korah Sotan. The Sotan is rendered, ripped. Why would the shofar, how does the shofar do that to the Sotan? That's also a very mystical concept. Also, the Gemara says that the sounds of the shofar are based on crying. If you notice that there are different sounds of a shofar, there's a tekiah, which is really corresponds to a human whale. You know, it's a whale, right? Then there's a shvarim, which is sort of like a sigh, you know. And then there's the tua, which is a staccato cry, you know, where a person just breaks down and so on. Why does the sounds of a shofar why is it based on crying? That is the question. Also, we read the Akedah on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, ostensibly because we want to review or reawaken the merit of the Akedah. But is there something else going on that we read the Akedah on Rosh Hashanah? See. Also, usually, why is Aser Simei Tshuva after Rosh Hashanah? It really should be before. You know, you have the 10 days of repentance to try to do Tshuva, and then you're judged. Why would 10 days of Tshuva come after the judgment itself? What's the point, since you've already been judged, you see? So I've asked an entire series of questions. For those who have been counting, I've asked 14 questions. Is it possible to answer all these questions with basically one theme? And the answer is yes. If you understand what the real concept, the real meaning of Rosh Hashanah is, then all of these questions can be answered because they all fit into the theme itself. Why does God do anything? You can encapsulate all the acts of God in three uh, behaviors, three topics or themes, or three rationales. This is why God does anything, okay? You have to remember, fundamentally, what is going on in this world? What God did is very interesting, and that's really what you have to know first. What God says the following, I'm going to create a reality, a reality in which I will, of course, be revealed. And I want people to be in that reality. And therefore, they will experience my being. And that is the greatest experience of all. It's called Olam Habo. So what God does is he creates Olam Habo. He creates the future world, the world to come first. And what is the essential nature of that reality? That reality is a situation in which God is totally revealed. Totally revealed. 
you see. And there's no concealment. There's no what's called hester in that reality. That's what God does. But God, what he wants is the following. He wants to take that reality and change it. He wants to change it into a reality in which he is concealed. You don't see him, you see. And he wants to place individuals or beings in that reality, which is called Oilam Hazer. Oilam Hazer is a place that God is not revealed at all. The physical world, which is physical, because the physical world is a barrier, really, to experiencing God. So he creates Oilam Hazer. And he says to the people in Oilam Hazer, what you need to do is reconvert this Oilam Hazer into Oilam Habo. I want you to remove the physical barrier. That's called zikoch, to purify the material and to change it, reverse it into ilm habo. Yes, that's what he wants. Therefore, what God's intent is to create a reality, to change that reality to an incredibly inferior reality, and then to change that back to retransform that inferior reality back into the original reality. Who's going to do this? And the answer is the Jews. That's their job. Their job is called zikoch. Their job is to retransform a physical reality back into a spiritual reality, which is the first reality that God created, you see. And there are reasons why God wants to do that. But essentially, that's really all it's about. Reality one, he's present. Reality two, he's concealed. He takes people, puts it into that reality, and says, okay, your job is to re-transform reality two back into reality one. And to the extent that you've contributed to that re-transformation, to that extent, you will experience me in reality one, which is the future world. That's the whole, that's the name of the game. If you really want to know all of it, summed up in you know, just a couple of words. Reality one is first, reality two is second. God wants reality two to go back into reality one, and the Jews are the ones who are picked. That concept is called tikkun, you see. Tikkun means to rectify or to correct, and that's what God wants. He wants to rectify or correct the existential state, which formerly was incredible, and now has become inferior, and he wants to regress or re uh, to retransform that into the great reality from Ilum Hazet to Ilum Habo. And that's really the whole game plan. <clears throat> now, the question, of course, is well, how did the Jews do this? You see, and the answer is God gave them different devices to do this. They can do it either by doing commandments. Mitzvahs, and I explained two weeks ago that the logic of a mitzvah is where you, by doing the mitzvah, or the, you testify to the will of God that he, it is supreme. And you also testify that you believe, right, that God is really the only in, being that has a will. You have to conform to that will. By doing that, you will experience God that you testified exists, measure for measure. That's absolute justice, you see. Now, besides that, God gave another way. The other way that he gave was called tshuva. Well, what happens if you make a mistake? 
Now normally if you make a mistake, what happens? As a result of that, then God would distance himself. Why? Because when you do what you want, when you do a sin, what you're really declaring is, I also have a will. I can also do what I want. So God says, if you believe you're also somebody, right, then I will distance myself from you, measure for measure. To the extent that you think you're somebody, I will remove myself from you. So that's kilku, damage. How do you undo the damage? And the answer is tshuva. Tshuva is a statement of regret. It's really what it is. I'm sorry that when I did the sin, obviously I was declaring that I can do whatever I want. I regret that testimony. Take it back, you see? And therefore what I now testify, right, is that you're the only one, and that's really what tshuva is. Tshuva is taking back a testimony that you made and reversing it. So God said, if you do that, I will allow you to remove the kilko, the damage that you've done through the sin. But there are people that do not do tshuva, and there are people that don't do mitzvahs. So God, as I explained two weeks ago, instituted a third device, tikkun device, which is called yisurin or suffering. And I mentioned how suffering in and of itself, okay, does a tikkun. Because it shows you that you are not what you think you are. It removes the, the delusion that you are independent of God. And therefore, as a result of that, we now can introduce the fact that God is everything, you see. So therefore, suffering is a way of tikkun, to reverse the whole process. Therefore, what happens now? We now understand that there's a situation that mankind, certainly the Jews, find themselves in. Okay, what's that situation? They are in a situation in which God is concealed. And they have to get out of this situation. The only way to get out of this situation is to reverse the physical universe into a spiritual. There's no other way. You see, because God will not take a guy and put him into Elam Abba. What the Jews have to do, they must remove the barrier itself. There's no other way. You see? And that's why that is necessary to experience Elam Abba, the future world, by dissolving the physical universe, which is ultimately what happens. And we do that through three different devices, which is called tikkun. See the mitras, commandments, tshuva, which is repentance, right? And yesurin, which is suffering. That's it. That's the long and short story of the whole plan. I mean, obviously it's far more involved, but basically if you had to sum it up, that's the, that's the whole plan, you see which is very important to understand. What is the entire plan of God? <clears throat> if we understand this, the basic plan, we begin to understand what's going on. I mentioned that there are three categories that define all the acts of God. The first category is called the anhoga, the actions that God takes, hakiyum, to create, to establish the universe. So that's what God does, you see. He creates the oilum the haba, the future world. Then he creates the oilum hazer, 
the world that is a barrier, blocks the divine presence, you see. Then he creates human beings and he puts them in different situations that will force them either to do mitzvahs or affairs. And in that situation, they are compelled to choose. And he then gives them free will. And free will allows them to choose and they are held accountable because what they choose is truly their choice. God does not compel anyone to do sins or mitzvahs. And therefore, since they do the mitzvah, that is held, they are held accountable for the mitzvah, and therefore they are responsible for the mitzvah, and therefore they get rewarded because they did the mitzvah. If they sin, it's the reverse. They sin, they sin because they freely want to sin, therefore they are held accountable, culpable for the sin, and therefore, you know, it's not good. Then they damage the creation. In any case, so this concept of where God creates the whole scenario is called the Anhog of Kiyom. It's the action God does to create the entire set. It's like a play. It has a set. The set produces and so on. You see, and each person is placed in a specific time, a specific location, and a specific situation. You see, some people are born rich, some people are born poor, in between, some people are born brilliant, some people are average, and so on. Everybody has a different situation. There are no two individuals that enter this world in the exact same situation. Why? Because what God said is that every aspect of the universe is distributed to a person. In other words, each person in the entire world, Jews, are assigned to a specific place in creation. And it's your job, right, to sort of like remove the blockage in that area and only that person can do it you see and that's his job his assignment therefore as a result of that everybody has to be in a different situation because each area calls for a different set of circumstances to do the job of tikkun in that area of creation you see and that's a very important idea why no two people are exactly the same in exactly the same situation you know and I'm not talking about money or you know status you know you could take all the characteristics of man intelligence emotions you know uh, sensitivities uh, character traits all those things that make us what we are no two people are the same you see in fact the proof of that you notice there are seven and a half billion people in the world it no two people look exactly the same, which is astounding. How God can make seven and a half billion people and no two people, and if you look at a face, I mean, how many features does a face have anyway, you know? What, you know what, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, you know, skull, some hair on the head. I mean, you know, I mean, how many things are there anyway? It no two people look exactly alike. Yeah, some people look similar, twins, but it's not the same, you see. Right? And that shows you why is that? Because each person has his own assigned area. And there's no two people that have the exact assigned area. If no two people look the same, you see. In any case, so that's called the Anogas It is the attribute that God creates the entire universe. 
exactly according to this plan, which I've mentioned what it is. It's a very simple idea. You want to get to Edom Habo, work. Do the job. You saw, see? And the Torah spells out what the job is. You don't do the job, you have big problems ahead, you see? Because in the end of time, there's a reckoning, and so on. In any case, so this is the first uh, actions of God. It's called the Anhoga, the actions of Kiyom, which is Mekayim, to fulfill, or rather to establish the entire creation. Fine. Now, if this is the case, then we begin to realize something very important. That what God does, he says, wait a minute. If I've given people a job, remember, there are two distinct ideas here. One is the job itself, to change reality two back into reality one. That's the job, right? And there's a number of people assigned to that. The second thing is, well, what about the person, the worker, you know? How much have you contributed to this tikkun? How much have you done in terms of reversing the order of reality? You see? And that's the second concept. The job itself is to change realities, and each person has to contribute to that change. Well, if that's the case, that would mean the following. That, obviously, God waits for a person to act, and based on his actions, God now has to look at the person and say, well, I have to judge you, right? Are you doing the job that I set out for you to do? Not only that, he also has to judge well, where we hold it, you know? How far is the tikkun ahead, you know? Is it, you know, from a scale of zero to a hundred, you know? And when God created Oilam Hazir, it was basically down, you know, at a very low level, and the Jews have to bring it from zero, let's say, all the way up to a hundred. So he's got to, God now has to look at the reality. Well, what are we holding in the terms of removing the blockage? Are we holding by 10, 40, 60? How much of the blockage spiritually, or physically, I should say, has been removed? So that's the first thing that God has to do. He has to judge where is the tikkun holding. The second thing he has to judge is he looks at you as a person. Is okay, what have you contributed to the whole job? You see? In many ways, it's like a factory. A factory, let's say, makes, uh, you know, um, shoes. Right? They manufacture shoes. So there are two things going on. There's the manufacturing process, making shoes, and then there's the guys contributing, making the shoes. You know, whatever, you got the shoemakers and all that, the leather goods, everything, you see? But all of it, in the end, has to make shoes. But each person involved in the company, right, can be evaluated to what extent are they contributing to the process of making shoes. So you have two things going on in any given factory, you see? So there has to be what's called mishpat, judgment. Judgment in terms of where is the tikkun holding. The second thing is, what are you doing with the tikkun? Where are you holding how much are you contributing to the whole process itself? Each person, you see. So therefore, it makes sense, just like a factory, that you have to evaluate, you see. 
No. Here's the problem. The problem is that it is possible for everybody to do nothing. It's possible. Why? Because everybody has free will. It could be that the whole Jewish people will sit back and say, we don't want to do anything at all. We want to close the factory. What's God going to do? You see, he gave them free will to do the job. You see, and he's not going to interfere with that free will or else there's no free will. So it is possible for the entire world or the whole Jewish world just to say we give up, we're not interested. Get somebody else, you see. So what God decided a long time ago is something very interesting. That the, he will not allow mankind or Jews, even with their free will, <coughs> to do what? To do nothing. He will not tolerate that. Therefore, what God created is a new action. It's called a backup plan. It's called a contingency plan. That means I will not allow this to happen. Now, the question, did it ever happen? And the answer, of course it did. Even though it's highly statistically improbable, right, that everybody is going to do nothing, wow. But it did happen. Remember? <coughs> Noach. Noach in the flood. Nobody, everybody was corrupted. Everybody was sinning, everybody, right? Except Noach and his kids and their wives, whatever, right? So what did God do? He wiped out the whole planet. You see? But he saved Noach. Why? Because he gave mankind free will, right? But he, he determined that he will not wipe out mankind, you see? And he didn't. So mankind survived. This Hanhogo guarantee that the world must reach its tikkun, one. And number two, that mankind must be in the future world. You see? That's the second part. Right? This guarantee is called Hanhogas Hayichud or Hanhagat Hayichud. Yichud means the one and only. What that means is that God, why is he called Yichud? Because God is above justice. God can dispense with the entire plan. And he says, you know, I'm going to get rid of the whole plan. I'm just going to give everybody Ulam Habo right away. Forget about this 6,000 year business. He can do that. God is not subject to the rules of justice, you know, not at all. In fact, he's the only being, you see, that can violate, so to speak, the rules of justice. Just, and not, it's not a violation, he just dispenses with the entire program, if he wants. So this Hanhogas HaYichod is the actions of the one who is supreme is the actions of a being that has created everything, even justice, you see. And what God does is he stretches into that area of action to save the world. In other words, God has said, even though everybody has free will, and in order to get the future world, they have to exercise their free will to do the mitzvahs, right? I will not allow the world to completely sin, and the, that means there must be a tikkun, there must be and mankind, and specifically now certainly Jews, are guaranteed to be in Ulam Habo, which is incredible when you think about that. Now how God works, does that, is unknown. 
But the series of actions that God takes to accomplish this feat is called the Anhogah Sayyichud, the Anhogah of the One or the Unique One, and so on. But it is operative, very important. And that's why Adam sinned, just continued. Kain and Hevel, they sinned, continued. Noach and his generation were wiped out, right? Noach survived, everybody else continued. Then you had the Doha Floga, right? The generation of dispersion continued. It never stops. God will not allow this world not to have a tikkun. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, what's called a rotsen elyoid. It's called a, a will of God that is impenetrable and irreversible. <coughs> and there is nothing in all creation that can go against it. Yeah, it's concealed. We don't know how it works, but it's there, you see. So those three actions of God really, uh, uh, in a certain sense, encapsulate all the actions of God. That's really it. God is either creating a situation that you need to be in to do the tikkun, one, or he's judging you, number two, or he's subjecting you to a different series of actions where you must survive. And that's it. We don't know anything else that God does, you see. God has never told us what he does in his spare time. We don't know. This is what he does. Okay. Now, once we understand all these ideas, we can now understand, in many ways, what is going on. Well, obviously, <clears throat> if there's a plan where people have to do work, and as a result they earn a reward, then obviously that calls for a judgment, as I said, you see. Therefore, what God decided is that at a certain periodic time, I must assess the world. So it's not an individual that's judged. It's the entire existence itself. Where is the Tikkun holding? You know, is it at 20, 40, 50, and so on? And then he looks at each individual worker. What are you doing to contribute to that Tikkun? You see? So when we begin to think about that, <clears throat> Rosh Hashanah really is that time that God looks at the totality of all creation to see where is it standing and what is each person doing in contributing to that tikkun. Uh, so Rosh Hashanah is a time of judgment, but it's not so much the individual, it's the entire plan. You know, it's like an a, a, a owner of a company walks in, sits down at his desk and says, I gotta figure out what's going on here. So what he's gonna do is is investigate every area of the company. The manufacturing part, the accounting, the inventory, the advertising, everything, you see? And then besides that, he wants to look at, obviously that's the bottom line, the profit statement, he's also gonna look at each individual worker. Well, what are you doing, you know? You're a manager, are you managing, you know? You're supposed to be working the machines. Is that what you're doing, and so on, you know? So it's a total assessment of the entire company. Rosh Hashanah is that time where God assesses the totality of all existence to see where it's holding. That's what he does. And that makes sense, you see. Now what is interesting 
is God can do this in a nanosecond. And not only that, he doesn't have to tell anybody. Think about it. Just sends out the pink slips. Right? A guy comes into his factory or his company, whatever, right? He assesses the whole thing. He doesn't tell anybody. He just checks it out, investigates, so on, evaluates everything, right? Then he decides, okay, you know, I'm not making that much shoes, whatever. So what he does, he sends out pink slips or he gives people warnings. You see? Now, the boss really doesn't have to do anything. He can judge, and then the consequences are that some people will be fired, some people will be elevated, right? Some people will be moved from one position to another. All kinds of consequences occur. But in the end, he doesn't have to tell anybody anything. You know, he just sends out the consequences, the review, and that's the end of it. You see? But God does not want to do that. Because he could look at totality of all existence and in an instant of time, and that's by the way what he does, it was exactly what's going on. And then he could send out the pink slips. You know? Okay. You're not doing much. I gave you a lot of money this year. You know, what are you doing with it, right? Well, I gave you a lot of money this year. You're not doing much. Okay. God puts into your mind to invest in the stock. Stock market crashes in your stock. And all of a sudden, you become poor. Not a big deal for God to do anything. See? Or God says to a person, I like what you're doing. You know? Not only are you keeping interest, let's say, but you're also trying to influence others to keep interest. Hey, I'm going to get you a grant. Somebody's going to give you a grant to, you know, really promote this and be able to help more people. You see, God decides. And he knows in an instant. But he doesn't want to do that to people. He wants the Jewish people to influence the verdict. And therefore, Elul. Elul becomes a month of tshuva, you see. That's the warning. El is the warning. Okay, you gotta straighten out. Okay? Because I want you to know, God tells everybody, I'm going to judge everything on Rosh Hashanah. So therefore, you need to get your act in shape. Get your act together, you see? So that is an incredible chesed. Think about that. He didn't have to tell anybody what he's doing. And what he's doing could have happened instantly. You know, and the repercussions, we would never know what the repercussions are, but as the year goes by, we know what the repercussions are. You see, in that case, we would never have a chance because we wouldn't have been warned to do tshuva or to try to keep our jobs, so to speak. You see, but the Rebbeinu does not want that. He wants the Jews to know that, by the way, come out of Tishrei, I'm going to reevaluate the whole company. Do tshuva, and that's Elul. That's why we have an entire awareness of Elul and what is about to happen. Because God wants the Jewish people to influence the verdict on themselves especially, you see. It's a very important idea that Russian does not want to do that type of investigation or analysis. You know, he doesn't tell anybody. No, he wants you to influence the verdict and to do tshuva. And therefore, Elo comes, and we're all awakened. You know, we know that God is going to judge the world in two weeks or whatever, and so on. And we think of tshuva, hopefully, how to correct our ways, and so on. This is what he does on Rosh Hashanah. It's an assessment of the tikkun ha'kloli, 
The Tikkun HaKoyim means the entire rectification of creation. Where is it standing? And how much is each Jew uh, contributing toward that? It's a very important idea. Once we understand this, there are many questions that I had asked that can be resolved. Question one, what is the essence of Rosh Hashanah? The, end, the essence is, it's not so much a judgment of yourself, it's an entire analysis, assessment of the entire creation itself. That's what it is. You are judged insofar as where do you fit into the whole process of which is to remove the blockage of that divine light that is prevented from coming down. And we have to remove it. But that is the essence of Rosh Hashanah. Second question I ask, what's the historical event that which Rosh Hashanah is part of? And the answer is something, you're going to laugh. Rosh Hashanah is not a Jewish holiday. It's an Israeli holiday. supposed to laugh. <laughs> it's an Israeli holiday. It's not Jewish. Now you look at me, what in the world are you talking about? I can just see it now. That the Knesset is going to watch the video. It's okay. We now can promote Rosh Hashanah as another Israeli invention. You know? What does that mean in Israeli holiday? Was Adam Mauritian Jewish or not? And the answer is he wasn't. Why not? Who was the first Jew? first Jew was Avram Avinu. But he was 52 years old when the world turned, 2000. That's a long time after the world was created. 2,000 years he became 52, you see. The question is, why would God do that? Why didn't God make uh, Avram Avinu the first Jew? He should have been Odomeritian, right? He should have been the first man. But the idea to that is very interesting. What God originally intended is that it shouldn't be the Jews that do the deacon. It should be mankind. Think about that. That makes sense, doesn't it? Why the Jews? All mankind should do the deacon. You see? So Adam Mauritian was not Jewish, but he was a Yisrael. What's the difference between a Yisrael, which Yaakov became, and a Ivri? Avram Avinu was an Ivri. You see, and Yaakov Avinu, three generations later, was Yisrael. What's the difference between the two? Ivri, a Hebrew, right, is a nationalistic term. It means we are descendants from Avram Avinu, Avram or Ivri, Abraham the Hebrew. You see, so we are Hebrew. But that's an ethnic term, you see. The concept of Yisrael is somebody who has the neshama, has a certain type of neshama that if he does a mitzvah, he can actually remove the physicality of the universe. That's much greater. Every Jew has a neshama. That neshama is connected to every single reality, 
that, that exists. Oilam Haba is one, and there are four, Oilam Hazek consists of four different sub-realities. A Jew's Neshama has five parts, the Nefesh, the Ruach, the Neshama, which is an individual term, okay? It also has a Chaya, an Yechido. There are five parts of the Jewish soul, and each part is connected to all the different realities, okay? And so on. You have uh, uh, the highest reality, which is Adam Haba, which is called Adam Kadmon, then you have Atsilus, Bria, Yitzir, and Asiya. The Jewish Neshom is connected to each one of these realities. And every time you do a mitzvah, you influence the reality that you're connected to. See? So, Adam Rishon wasn't Jewish, but he was Israel. That's what he was, you see? Because God never intended that the Jews should be the only one to do the tikkun. All mankind was involved in the tikkun for 2,000 years, you see. And when they do the mitzvah, they would influence their reality that they were connected to. So, Adam Rishon wasn't a Yehudi or an Ivri. He was a Yisrael. That's all you needed. He had that type of neshama that was connected to everything, you see. Therefore, Yisrael, he was an Israeli. That's what I mean. But the concept of Yisrael is the essential nature of the Jew. Because if you are not a Yisrael, it means you do not have the neshama which is connected to all parts of reality. Which means that your acts cannot in any way influence anything above this Ilm Hazeb. Can't. You don't have the connections, as they say. So the critical definition of a Jew is every Jew is a Yisrael, and therefore he could do the Tikkun. If he was not a Yisrael, he could not do the Tikkun. And if a guy decides to become a Jew, then he is given an Eshama, just like a Jew, where he is now connected to every aspect of reality. That, that, therefore, every guy, in many ways, is as powerful as a Jew, once he becomes Jewish, to be connected to realities, all of them, and to do the tikkun by his acts. You see the way it works. So therefore, if you think about it, Rosh Hashanah is not a Jewish holiday, right? It's an Israeli holiday. It's the beginning of mankind's ability to do tikkun, which all men should have done the tikkun. However, for 2,000 years they didn't. They sinned. So God took away the neshama from a guy. He left him with a lower level neshama, which is called the nefesh, so even a goy has a spiritual soul, but he disconnected all four. Because they do not deserve to remain, because they're not doing the mitzvahs. So he left all five only without Ramavino. So out of the 2,000 years of mankind's history, only Ramavino had the complete uh, 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 totality of five, five chelke neshama. A goy only has one, which is the nefesh. So he's connected to Ilam Hazel, you see. But the problem with the guy is, since he's not connected to anything above, he cannot in any way influence the actions in the spiritual domains. He can influence Ilam Hazel, but nothing above, you see. So God took it away from Goyim. I should say he took it away from all the Yisraelim for 2,000 years, and he left it with Avram Avino and everybody else who's a guy cannot do it unless they want to become Jewish. Then they restore their, then the Shema, of course, is given back to them, and so on. So, what's interesting about this, and then after that, uh, the uh, Ivri, the Hebrew, Avram Avinu was a Hebrew, 
The job of Tikkun now became a Jewish enterprise. And if Goy wants to join that enterprise, right, he has to become Jewish. No longer will a nation be able to do that, except they were granted one more time by Mantura, but they were rejected. In any case, uh, so this is the history really of the Masake or Matakein, those who can connect or rectify creation. Therefore, what we see is very interesting that who is the real Jew, if you think about that? It's whoever has the five parts of the Neshama. Well, Adam Rishon had it. Not only did Adam Rishon have it, he had the greatest Neshama ever known. He had everything, you see. That's how great he was. So therefore, Rosh Hashanah is a holiday, right? That is not, has nothing to do with Judaism in the sense, uh, Jewishness. It has to do with the fact that he's Minuanushi, he's a, he's a human being. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is, you see. Now, therefore, when did the enterprise begin of Tikkun? It began with Adam Marishan. And since Adam Marishan was born, when? Out of Tishrei, because the world was created in the 25th day of Elo. Therefore, the judgment, which I mentioned God has to do, also is on Aleph Tishrei. It's an annual assessment. You know, that's usually what you do. You want to assess a company, you assess it on a, an annual, a year later, after it was founded, to see how it's doing. You cannot assess it every day, you see. So therefore, Rosh Hashanah, which when Odomishim was created, was the beginning of the whole Tikkun process. As a result of that, Rosh Hashanah, which is our Tishrei, becomes the Day of Judgment, you see. That's a very important idea in terms of what historical Jewish event corresponds to Rosh Hashanah. And the answer, there is no Jewish event. But there's something in many ways greater. It's, the, it's a Yisrael event, where a human being now has an Hashanah called the Yisrael, you see. Any case, why is everything judged? We now understand that, why everything is judged. Because since God now has to determine what exactly is the level of Tikkun, right? And therefore he begins to shift, move things around. You see? Because he may, may decide that the Jews are sinning. So he's going to take them out of Spain and exile them to other countries. You see? So therefore he has to move the Jews out of that and make many things happen which will create that scenario. In other words, and God uses everything, every single creature on earth most of them are used just to create the scenario, the situation that the Jews have to be involved with to do the tikkun. That's why everything is judged. They're not judged because they're guilty or culpable, but they're judged, okay, where do I place them in order for the scenario to be adequate for the Jews now to do the tikkun in a new situation? So they're not judged because they're guilty. They're judged in terms of where do I position them in order to enable the Jew to do that. And everything is involved in that process. That's why, in that sense, everything is created. Now, why then, like I mentioned, how could you have a judgment day once a year? That makes no sense. And the answer is no. Every day there's a judgment event. The Mishpah, you know, if a person sins and God wants to punish them, he's judged every day. But the creation is only judged once a year. That's the difference. Every day is a judgment day for the individual only. It's not, there's no judgment on the entire Tikkun level where it's holding. Only on Rosh Hashanah is the entire universe judged. That's a tremendous difference between every day and, of course, Rosh Hashanah. 
But of course, there's a judgment every single day. What is the meaning of shofar? What is this all about? And that is the second part. Now, there's a very big problem that you have to know. God did us a tremendous favor. What's the favor? He told us that he's going to judge everything, us, right? So he warned us, and that's Elo. But the problem is this. If God were to judge the entire world by himself, tell nobody, then nobody would know. You see, we would have the consequences of that, but nobody would know. But since he broadcasts and advertises and says, hey, Rosh Hashanah is going to be a judgment day for everybody, right? Then what does that mean? That everybody knows. Who's everybody? The Jewish people know. But guess what? So does the Sultan. Because all the Malachim know. And the Sultan knows, right? And if that's the case, that's very bad. Because imagine on Rosh Hashanah and you're trying to do tshuva and you don't. So the Sultan's up there prosecuting you. He's saying, come on, give us a break. This guy's not doing tshuva. You see, he's going to punch holes into everybody's tshuva. Very few people can stand the scrutiny of the Sultan's prosecution. Very few people, you see. But the problem is, on one side, God did us a favor by telling us everything that what's going to happen. On the other side, Bad news. By telling everybody that he's going to be judging everybody, what happened? The Sultan knows, and guess what? Once there's a judgment, you have to have the Sultan involved. You can't dismiss the prosecuting attorney if there's a court case, because his position there is to do what? Is to prosecute. So once God said that I'm going to do judgment, that means there's an entire court case going on. But if there's a court case going on, then the Sultan is now in the prosecutorial box doing his job. But that's terrible for us, you see? So it's almost like we can say thank you and no thank you. Because now you've introduced the Sultan in the judgment court and he's going to prosecute us, you see. Favor, no favor. What's God going to do? So what God then introduces a way where the court, where God was the judge then, will leave the courtroom and go to his private chambers. How? Shofar. What Shofar does is it begs God, do not judge us based on our sins, mitzvahs and all that, you see. Go into the chamber of the Anchogas HaYichud, which is a guaranteed system that will get us into Ilum Abba. Get away from the court of judgment, which sees what you did and what you didn't do. Go into the other courtroom called the chamber of the Anagas HaYichud, and in that chamber, God will guarantee you that you will be in the future world. Go into that chamber. Even if in that chamber it means bad news, suffering, but it's better to suffer and get Ilum Abba than to not suffer and get nothing, you see? So what Shafer does, Shafer is the, what's called the rescue device. What it does, when the Jews blow Shafer, then automatically God says, okay, I hear the Shafer, 
and God gets up from a seat of judgment literally and he goes into the room private nobody can enter you see and he judges the Jews there but there the judgment is not you know what am I how am I gonna punish the Jews or whatever there the judgment is how am I gonna save the Jews no matter what they did it's a different courtroom there is no something there there's no defending angels there's nothing there except God you see and that's what the Shafer does it moves God from the the, uh, the court of justice to the court of Yichud where we are guaranteed to survive that's what it does that's what the mystery of the Shafer is and that's why the Pesukim is Korah Satan the Satan is destroyed because all of a sudden God says stop no more prosecutions God gets up so to speak goes into that chamber and judges the Jews but this time the judgment must allow the Jews to survive whereas in the other court it could destroy people because you're bad you're not doing anything and therefore forget about it you're out in the court of Yichud they must survive you see and that's therefore what the Shefer does okay now once we understand that so now we understand the Malachim you understand? Why is everybody sitting home celebrating on Rosh Hashanah? And the answer is because we know tomorrow we're going to blow shofar, right? And we will, God will get up from that courtroom and go into the courtroom of Yichud and we will be saved. So then what's the problem? Let's celebrate. You see? Even though it's not great, but it means, you see, you know what it's like? It's like somebody goes, it's like a guy's being tried life and death by a jury. So he goes over to the judge and says, hey, I don't like that prosecutor, and I, I don't like the jury, you know? Do me a favor, get up from your chambers, you know, your seat, and go into your private chambers, and judge us there. You see, that's really what happens by the shofar. So therefore, you know, we know that we will survive, no matter what. Because because of the anhoga, the actions of Yichud, the Jews must survive and be in Eidim Abba. Guaranteed. God, of course, will make sure he will do whatever he needs to do. But at least we know we survive. And that's why, to us, we can celebrate our Hashanah. Because we know that God has taken care of the fact, right, that the Sultan is not around, and therefore we, do, we will not be destroyed. That's why we can celebrate our Hashanah. Yeah, it's a little shaky, you know, because nobody knows what's going to happen in that sense, you know. But in the end, the view of that God in that courtroom is that the Jews must survive. You see, that's why to us, Rosh Hashanah is not as frightening. In a certain way, it's frightening because we don't know, you know, as we will see, because in the courtroom of Yichud, the primary way that God makes sure a person will survive is what? Is suffering, obviously. So he will bring different types of suffering at different points of time. So we do know that. But at least we know we survive, you see. And therefore we know that's going to happen. So that's why the angels said, listen, if anyway they're going to survive, so this whole courtroom business is a charade in a certain sense. You know, it's, a, it's not really, you know, we're not talking about real people really being tried, you know, based on their merits or demerits, right? You know what I'm saying? You know, so let's say hallel. We can say hallel, why? Because we know we'll survive. And that's tremendous simcha that even after the judgment, we still survive. What a simcha. Incredible. You see? So they were right, the angels. 
You see, that's what they said. They said, wait a minute. If, if it's all the simcha, so let's say halal. Because imagine what it is to go through a judgment process and know that the, the, the jury and the prosecuting attorney is going to be nullified. Hey, tremendous, right? And know that you will survive and enjoy for eternity. It's unbelievable. You see, so God said to them, you got a good point. You know, really, you could say halal, but halal has to be complete joy, not just the consequences. And therefore, since people are frightened, because it is Rosh Hashanah, and the books of life and death are open, therefore you cannot say halal, because you can only say halal when a person is joyful, not just if the consequences will be good. And therefore, we do not say halal. But that explains what the dialogue is between God and the Malachim, you see. Why do we say Zemalchi, Zechonis, and Shifaris? Because really that's our plea. What is the essential activity that has to go on in Rosh Hashanah? To declare God king and to accept his sovereignty. Think about it. That's really what it's all about. In other words, I made a mistake. I thought I was a king or whatever, right? No, no. You're the king. I accept you, that you are the king of everything. And therefore, I accept your sovereignty, your rule. And therefore, I accept your mistress. You see, that's the tshuva, really. Because the opposite of that, which is a sin, is where you don't accept God as the true only king, and you do say, I'm also a sovereign over myself, right? I do what I want. You see what I'm saying? So therefore, that's really the tshuva, that he's a melech. So we recite psukim that he's a melech. Now, but we do say this, wait a minute, what happens if I'm not saying it sincerely or earnestly enough, right? So then I say, okay, Look at what my forefathers did, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, you know, and based on their merits, let me survive, you see. And the third thing is what happens if that doesn't work, you see, then Shafer. Then we rely on the Shafer to get us out of this, right, the God to get up in his private chambers and to rule us based on the objective that we will all survive. So really, that's really what's going on with those three ideas, you see. No, no, after. Now, why the shofar? And I answered, because the essential concept of the shofar, right, is to remove, is to, is to beg God to get up from the seat of judgment in a courtroom where you have the sultan as a prosecuting attorney. It's a real court case. Don't ever think that it's a game going on. We have no concept that it's a real court case that God sits there and he got all the billions of Malachim and the Sultan and his whole entourage and they're all, you know, they're all saying, well, now look at this neshama, this neshama, and so on. And there's a real prosecuting attorney. You know, we don't see this, but if God ever opened up the heavens, you'd faint and you'd probably get a heart attack because it's a real court case. You know, it's not, don't, don't think it's a, well, it's a game going on there. No. And therefore, what the shofar does, it saves us. If it wasn't for the shofar, most of us would be doomed. Because we don't have the merits, unfortunately, to survive. You see, certainly to survive in eternal bliss. I mean, what, what is Oil Ma'abo? Oil Ma'abo is not Hawaii. You see what I'm saying? It's eternal or infinite bliss eternally. Think about what that means. Imagine, it's infinite bliss 
you know, and after a hundred billion years, guess what? There's still an infinity go on. It never ends. You have to understand what infinity is. That after a hundred billion years, of which we cannot even imagine, right? It's not that we're nearing the end. It's still another infinity going on. It's another hundred billion. Another hundred billion. We, we cannot imagine what that is, you see? So if it wasn't for the fact that God gets up out of his court, we finished. Most of the people would not be able to survive because of the sins and so on. So the fact that God has introduced Hanukkah Sayyichud is the, one of the greatest simchas that we've ever experienced, you see. And by the way, that's really the secret of Sukkot, because of Hanukkah Sayyichud. But anyway, and that's why. So make no mistake, this isn't a game going on here, you know, make-believe. It's not a make-believe game, you know. And it says, if a city doesn't blow shofar, the Gemara says, they will be visited with terrible calamities. Why? Because in that city, right, God has not gotten out of his chair. You see what I'm saying? And therefore, very bad news for that particular place. That's why shofar is incredibly, it's the rescue that we need to survive, you see. And now you understand why a shofar also, why it's based on crying. Because what we're really saying to God is, listen, you know, get up out of your chair, go into the private chamber. And even if your judgment involves suffering, crying, why does a guy cry? Because it's pain. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering going on. You know what I'm saying? You know, we say, we'll take it anyway. That's the shofar. The shofar resembles crying because on Hogah it's basic operational mechanism is suffering. But it saves us. You know, it's like the ICU. Nobody wants to get into an ICU. <coughs> you know what I'm saying? However, thank God for the ICU when you need it, or else you'd be finished. So on. Same idea. We, the shofar resembles crying because we say that even though there's a judgment that's concerned about saving us and what may occupy or involve a lot of suffering, give it to us anyway. Because at least when it's all over, we will get into Ayyum Habwa. That's why. And that's also what's interesting. It says, The shofar is a chayt, which means a statute which is unknown to the Jews. But to God, it's mishpat lelekeyakayv. It's mishpat. Yeah. Because God knows exactly, right, what he has to do to save the Jews. To him, it makes sense. But to us, it's chayt. We have no idea what God is doing. You see. And that's why uh, the shofar is different to each one of the people and so on, you know? Why is the Akeda red? Why is the Akeda red on Mashashana? You'd think by now, hey, Avraham Avinu's Akeda was 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. And we've been asking God based on the merit of the Akeda. You know what I'm saying? How can we still get merit from that? It's incredible. You see? And the question is, why did God do that to Avraham Avinu? What is the Akeda really? You have to understand what the real test is. Why did God do that to Avraham Avinu? Why put him through that? You know, let me kill your kid. What's that supposed to mean? Because you have to understand what the real Nisoyen was to Avraham Avinu. Imagine, you know, Avraham Avinu sleeping. Well, all of a sudden he has a prophecy. And God is speaking to him. He says, I want you to go and kill your kid. Right? I want you to take him to wherever, Amaria, whatever. Put him up as a sacrifice, right? And, and hallelujah, oilo. You have to offer him up as an oilo, you see. 
Could you imagine what Avramovino is thinking? Avramovino is saying, wait a minute, none of this adds up. Why? Nisoyen one, test one. God doesn't require human sacrifices, you know? God, God, God does not require a human sacrifice. That's unheard of. You know, only the Aztecs or the other crazies and so on who sacrifice people, you know, they did this because they believed you had to appease the gods. This is absurd. So how could God even ask that kind of question? To sacrifice? That's number one. Number two, Avraham Avinu is the essence of chesed. How can a Baal chesed go and kill somebody? It's the exact opposite of kindness or chesed. It's impossible. Imagine the Nisoyen, the way he ends his own character structure. Right? Then number three, right? Wait, wait a minute. Like, uh, Avraham Avinu says, hey, that's my son. You know, it's not some local stranger. You know, that's my son. How, how does a man sacrifice his son? Number four, not only is my son, right, he's a Jew. How do you go and kill a Jew? Number five, he's the last Jew. Think about that. He's it, right? There's no Jews after Yitzchak because Yitzchak had not been married yet, correct? So there was no Yaakov at all. So that's the last Jew. So how can Avraham Avinu kill the last Jew? You see. And then there's number six, which was the greatest of the Nisiyonis. Avraham Avinu was a very logical person, a super genius, tremendous understanding of logic, what makes sense, what doesn't. Now here's what Avraham Avinu could not comprehend. It doesn't make sense. God told me, that the Jews will continue through Yitzchok, right? That means he will live, because he's not even married yet. Obviously, he'll get married to have somebody else. At the same time, you just told me to kill Yitzchok. That's impossible. That is an impossibility, you see, because they are mutually exclusive. If you're dead, you cannot have kids, you see? And if Yitzchok lives, then I'm violating the command to kill him. So it's impossible. In other words, what God did to Avraham Avinu, which is very interesting, is he introduced a completely irrational command. So irrational means it's exclusive. You cannot, it's mutually exclusive. Either if A is true, B cannot be true. And if B is true, A cannot be true. You see, you cannot have A and B existing at the same time. That's called irrational, it's illogical, you see. So Avraham Avinu was faced with a test of complete irrationality that God was appearing to Avraham Avinu as an irrational being. How do you deal with that? How does a man who has a super intellect of rationality deal with a completely irrational commandment? Now how do you even, you can't even begin to think about this. So Avraham Avinu had to overcome a tremendous test that he who is the great rational person has to now perform a commandment which is completely irrational. Because how, how can God say through Isaac will be, Yitzchak will be your generations? One side, and the other side, you must kill him. Now we know the answer, because God never said to Avram, offer him up as an oiler and kill him, shecht him, no. He just said, offer him up as an oiler. That's all, just offer him up. And then you'll take him off. But Avram Avinu assumed that if I offer him up, probably I gotta kill the guy. See, it was Avraham Avinu's assumption that created the test. And that's why it's God had an exit. 
because <coughs> God never contradicted himself. But from the plain implication of the words, Avram Avinu was right. You offer a guy up as an oiler, you don't take him off, you finish the job, you make a shrita, you see? So God was not irrational. But the question is, why would God do that to him? You see, what God did is in the, in, in, unbelievable. He presented himself to Avram Avinu as a God that's irrational. You see what I'm saying? This was the problem with Avram Avinu. What did Avram Avinu do? He says, He didn't even sleep. He got up in the morning early, and he said, listen. He said to himself, I have no idea what this is. This makes no sense. But I know one thing. I believe God is righteous, and on his understanding, everything makes sense. So he denied his entire skepticism. That was the level of his faith and his betochen. And he went ahead and did it. And of course, God said, now that you've done it, so on. But the question is, why would God do that? Why would God introduce to Avram Avinu an irrational argument? You see, commandment. And the answer is, because he wanted Avram Avinu to save all of us. You see, because what God was saying, this is your last test, you should know. In the end of days, I will save the Jews mostly, not through Mishpah, but through Yichud. That means I'm going to be completely irrational to them. It won't make sense. For instance, the Holocaust. It's almost irrational. How do you kill six million of your people? You know? Then you look around, 11 million Jews are gone. How, well, how does God stand by that and allow that to happen? You think for God it's a problem to, to stop that? Of course not. He could stop the whole business and its tracks. Yet God does, seems to allow 11 million Jews to be gone totally. Holocaust, pogroms, 2,000 years of exile. What is this? All of it looks irrational to us, you see? So what God did is he said, you know, I need to give the Jews the ability or the merit that if they ask me to save them through Yichud, which is irrational, because we don't understand how it works or whatever, the merit of me listening to them and doing Yichud for them will be the merit that Avraham Avinu went through with the commandment even though it was irrational. That's what it is. So he gave it to him at the last because in the end of time, the main thing that saves the Jews is not, is not, it's not the Mishpat because with Mishpat we would never survive. It's with Yichud that the objective of God is to get the Jews in the future world eternally and infinite bliss. But for that to happen in the end of time, almost everything you look is Yichud, which means it doesn't make sense. You see, and how do we invoke that? Because we ask God with the shofar to get into that courtroom. But what, what's our merit for that? And the answer is because of Avram Avinu. Since Avram Avinu, right, went ahead to sacrifice Yitzchak, even though the whole test was irrational, we therefore have the right to ask God, conduct behavior to us as if you are irrational. And that's Yichud, going to the private chamber. And that is why we read the Akedah on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Because it is in the merit of the Akedah that we can ask God to get into the private room and get us into the Olim Haba, no matter what it takes, you see. And now really, that's really what Rosh Hashanah is all about. And all the questions are really answered with that so simple ideas, you see.
that it's an assessment of all creation, and therefore there's a judgment. And God wants to alert us, and he warns us. That's a chesed. At the same time, he has to deal with the sultan, who now is going to say, hey, I know about this too. So I'm coming to the courthouse, you see? So he's got to stop him at the same time. Look at how many things God's have to take care of us, you see? And that's why all of this uh, in, uh, can be all understood by that theme, you see? And when you really think about it, we have Rosh Hashanah, you see? So Elul is really the time that we're alerted. Then Rosh Hashanah is a judgment, but you remember in every country there's an appeals court. So the 10 days of tshuva is the appeals. That's why it comes after the judgment. It's like the appeals court where you could again, well, you know you're judged and now there's a great incentive to try to do tshuva because we worry about what the judgment was and so on, you see? So the Aserasimei tshuva is really the appeals phase of the entire process. In the end, like I said before, you know, you have to remember, you know, it's one thing to do tshuva on a specific sin. Nice. But what you need to do is change the direction of your life to be more spiritual. This is really what people need in the end. You know, of course, there's a specific sins we did. We try to recall it and so on. But in the end, I, I mentioned this two weeks ago. What's your NG ratio, the Shama Guf ratio? Are your drives the Shama spiritual, or are your drives Guf physical? Where do you find yourself doing most of the day? Worrying about your physical comforts or about your spiritual uh, deficiencies? Which is it, you see? That's the most important thing that I would urge you to do on Rosh Hashanah, is you need to think about the direction that you're in. You know, you need to become more spiritual because we are, in many ways, fast approaching the end. I believe we are at the end of Ikvis of the Meshikah. I have a whole bunch of shurim on that in the 21st century and so on, that we are really approaching the end of time, which is the Ikvist of the Meshikha, and that Aschalta de Geula is going to start very, very soon. And once that happens, you won't have the free will anymore to decide, because then, although probably in the beginning of that you will, but in many ways it's going to be too late, you see. Now is the time to do tshuva. Now is the time to think about what do I want to do with my life you know, you want to do the mitzvahs, do tshuva, bring Jews back, try to influence other people to do mitzvahs, to believe in God, you see, and um, in many ways that should become much greater focus on what you should do with your life. Or is your life, well, where am I taking my next vacation, right? Is it Switzerland? Is it Hawaii? And so on, you know. What about all the money I need to collect, you know? you know, uh, security issues, and so on, you know. What about enjoying myself, and going out to this, or to that restaurant, whatever. This is fine in moderation, but the, the essential idea is, who are you? Are you a spiritual Jew, or are you a physical Jew? And in the end, that's what counts. And I want to tell you something, even though God, is yichud, means that you will ultimately be in the future world, but let me tell you something, there's a big difference in the future world where in the future world are you, you know? It's not just once you get in there, everything's great, you know? At a certain level, it is great. Because once you're in Eidem Hapo, it's infinite bliss eternally, you see. However, everybody's at a different level. This is what you have to remember, you know? That is that there are people at a level 
which is like in the stratosphere. Then there are people, you know, on the level much lower, you see, and, and that's very important. It's not just getting into the club, it's also what's your station in that club, you see. And all that has to do with how much uh, spirituality you've really engendered in yourself. You know? So that's what I'm telling you. We're not talking about doing the tshuva of a specific sin, although obviously that's very important. But what I am talking about is the direction of your life. If you do that, you will be incredibly joyful. You know, when the Mashiach comes, your joy will be incalculable, almost incomprehensible, because you will know that you did the right thing, you know. And I want to tell you something. Today, as bad as it is, is the greatest reward you can ever earn. The greatest. You know, there's a original Rebbe, famous Rebbe, Shorba Rishon, that said that every Jew that will remain religious, believe in God, have trust in God, and try to become spiritual. So he says, it's very interesting, he was a very great Rebbe, Rebbe Shorba Rishon, that the reward that you get for doing a mitzvah today, he says, is greater than the reward of Avram Avinu by the Akedas Yitzchak. Could you believe what that means? I mean, we've been collecting rewards from Akedah for 4,000 years. And he says that the difficulty of doing the mitzvah today is so great that the reward for keeping the mitzvahs today and staying straight with spirituality is greater than the Akedas Yitzchak. We can't even imagine what that is. That's what he says. Because the tests today is so great, the difficulty of remaining Jewish and religious and spiritual is so difficult, especially today, with all the distractions, the smartphones, which destroy a person's life, the internet, which really wipes them, you know, and all the tremendous amount of physical enjoyments out there today, and the immorality, it's incredible, goes on today, you know. And it's so easy to drop out of religion, spirituality, it's so easy. But somebody who somehow hangs in there, you know, that that, that test is greater than the Akedah Sitzchak, you see. So today, is it, even though as bad as it is, in many ways, it's the greatest time to live. I hate to say it that way, but if you think about it, you know, as bad as it is, right? I mean, okay, you can say to yourself, well, if you had a choice, you want to live in the worst time but get the greatest reward? Or do you rather live in an easier time and get less reward? Okay, but, the, but here's the problem. We were not asked. <laughs> Nobody consulted with me, right? <coughs> you, you ever notice it says in the Pirkei <coughs> against your will you created, right? What does that mean? Nobody asked you, <coughs> you know, that's it. So we're here anyway. I mean, we, you know, maybe if, we would, if God would ask us, you know, we would have said, no way. I'd rather go into time that's more spiritual. Okay, I won't earn that much reward, you know? Maybe we would have said that. I'm sure many people would have said that, right? And so on. Because the dangers living today is terrible in terms of remaining spiritual. But like I said, nobody asked me, and that's it, I'm here. So the bad part is it's the worst possible time to live in terms of the, it's a spiritual wasteland, desert. But the good news, like the bad news and the good news, but the good news is that if you stick to it, and it doesn't have to be a lot, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be an Avraham Avinu. If you do one mitzvah, you know, whatever, whether a woman lights candles and Shabbos and uh, teaches her kids chinuch and so on, or a man, you know, puts on tefillin, they observe Shabbos and kashras and so on and so forth, 
that one mitzvah is greater than Yaqeda Sitra. You see? And therefore, in, the, in that sense, today is the greatest time to live. That's the good news. It is. It's the greatest reward you'll ever receive of all times in history. Imagine what that means, you know? Today is the greatest, and it's the most dangerous, you know? So that's why I urge everybody, think about God, you know, uh, be driven to try to understand them, to, to, to do the mitzvahs, to achieve spirituality. And the reward today is beyond belief. So think about that, that, you know, you were not consulted, but at least now that you're here, it's unbelievable what the opportunity is, you know? And for those who want to get ahead, you know, um, there are many different programs, rather Poston runs many different programs to join, you know. Don't say to yourself, well, what I have to go for, I'm too tired, I'm this, I'm that. You know, if somebody would, if, you, if, if they showed you the reward for going to one shear, let's say that's offered by you, brother, you would faint at the amount of schar, because how many people go to a shear at nighttime when they'd much rather be doing other things and so on, you know. We don't realize the reward for doing a simple mitzvah to learn more Torah, which is critical. Try to learn more Torah, try to get, go to more shiurim. Anything you can do to advance your spiritual progress is beyond comprehension. And that's what I would urge all of you, you see. And what better time to do tshuva than Rosh Hashanah? It's coming up, you see? That's the best time, you, see? you know? And then when the judgment finally comes, then the yichud will appear to guarantee God will not have to do as much to save you because you've already done tshuva. See, the yichud is for all those guys that are not doing tshuva, really. That's the, that's the real. But unfortunately, the tikkun device that he uses is much more suffering. But you can minimize that. You see, you minimize that by saying, hey, stop, you know, I'm going to do tshuva, I'm going to become more spiritual, I'm going to make sure my kids learn, I won't talk lush and horror, right? I'll have more shalom bias with my spouse, and so on. Those are the things you really should think about. And if we all do that, you know, before you know it, this, this nightmare called this world, right, will be over, you know, and, uh, and we will be zoichot to Mashiach. And let me tell you something, you cannot comprehend, forget about Yom Haba, we cannot comprehend what the Messianic era is. We cannot. And I just want to tell you, what Chazal say about that, and that's here, not Olim Haba, you know, that it says that all the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu is hevel, is luft, nothing, compared to the Torah of the Mashiach. And Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, going to a Jewish bookstore, 100,000 volumes, right? Bavli, you show me everything, and the Medrash at the end of Koala says that all that Jewish learning, all that spirituality is, is like zero, compared to the spirituality in the Messianic era, which is an era of Elam Hasad. Could you believe what that is, you know? So the amount of spirituality will be beyond comprehension, you see? And you don't want to find yourself saying, when the Mashiach finally comes, right, and you have all this going on, you know, hey, there was this Rabbi Kesson that was saying, do tshuva before it's too late, right? And they messed up, he didn't do it, right? You don't want that to be happening, right? So therefore, think about it, do the mitzvahs, Learn Matora and so on, and you will uh, be you will merit to be part of something which is beyond comprehension. What's going to happen with this world? Thank you.
Any questions? No questions? I wanted to ask before. You mean everything was so perfectly answered, there's nothing to ask, right? I want to ask if, you know, Hashem's going into the chamber anyway, why should, what's the incentive to do Jehovah? If what? If Hashem's going to be forgiving us anyway, then what's the incentive to do Jehovah? Okay. Because there's two concepts you have to remember, right? Right? There's two concepts, right? One is to get rid of the filth, and the second thing is, right? The second thing is to put on all the perfume, you see? What, the, what God will make sure is that you can get into Oilem Haba, right? That means you can get in. But what does your Oilem Haba look like, you see? You see what I'm saying, you know? I mean, there's guys who live in a, you know, a five million acre palace, if you can imagine that. Then there's guys who live in a shack, you see, in Oilem Haba. Now, it's true that shack is incredible, that's true. But what about his five million acre palace, you see what I'm saying? So it's not just that you will want to, you, you, it's not just you want to get into Oilem Haba, but what's your Oilem Haba going to be? You see, you want the best, the greatest, you see? That's the difference. Not just to avoid uh, punishment, it's also to have enormous reward. I have a question. Yeah. I understand you said about blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, what it does. What about when... Uh, when Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, and we don't blow No, so therefore God covered that. If you mention the Pesukim of Shofar, it's as if you blew Shofar. God covered that when he said, Zichrin, a memory of the Shofar. You see? That's it? Okay. Listen. You know, it's happening, you know. Uh, things are happening, you know. I'll just give you one idea. Uh, that Trump is against, uh, he's now destroying Turkey. You know, that's what he's doing. I'm sure you're familiar with what's going on. Erdogan, he's destroying Turkey with the Liras collapsing and all that. The question, how do we understand this? And the answer really is that, well, what's Trump's job? Trump is a servo, Erdogan, who's doing tshuva, who's going to try to assist the Jews and protect the Jews. Well, who's one of the worst enemies of the Jews? Turkey. So Trump is destroying Turkey. He's doing his job. Right? This is not an accident, because the Bosham is now going to, in many ways, punish severely Turkey, because they are terrible in terms of what they're doing to the Jews, Israel especially, you know? So therefore, it's almost like spiritual, uh, you know, it's like Yaakov turning to his brother Esau, who did Shuvah a.k.a. also known as Trump, right? To say, your job after the tshuva is to help me. Okay. So Asaph said, no problem. I'll get my guy, Trump, to wipe them out. And that's exactly what's happening. You see? It's totally consistent with the whole theme of what Trump's job is. Yes? Some of the previous uh, lectures, you said that Hashem cast his vote. Everybody hates Trump. But Hashem cast his vote. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. How is he going to get out of this uh, current uh, difficulty where all his inner people are turning state witness? <clears throat> you know, God has his ways. It doesn't make a difference how many people oppose. You see, you had, by you remember, Chizkiyot, you had Sancherov, had an army of 185,000 people. 
that were encamped around Chizkiyot, and they were going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy Israel. In one night, an angel went through that camp and killed 185,000 battle-hardened soldiers, which is astounding, because there's no plague in the universe that can do that. One thing, you know, God, you know, you look at God, he's an unlimited being. If he doesn't want it to happen, it'll never happen. It doesn't make a difference, you know, what does it say, Eilaborechav in, in Lamatzeh, Eilaborechav, these guys come to us with the chariots, Beilabasusam, these guys come to us, right? We just have to mention God, and that's our merit, and just God wipes out the rest. It doesn't make a difference if the media hates him, the Republicans hate him, and the other guys are turning against him. It's all meaningless, really, you know? And I, I mentioned, all it is, it's satanic. The Sutton is desperately trying to stop this man. Because this man, if you notice, which I mentioned, you know, uh, one of the reasons why you see Trump as a messianic figure is because he, a messianic figure is not just for one nation. He introduces righteousness and justice to all nations. And look who Trump is taking on. Nobody ever expected that, right? He's taking on North Korea, China, Europe, NATO, Iraq, Iran, Canada, Mexico, the UN. This, nobody, nobody expected him to do this. They thought he's going to make, you know, do some things for America and, you know, come home with some tax money, you know. This guy's taking on the planet. Who ever heard of this? Because that's a messianic job. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He does not understand what he has to do. He just falls into it, you know? And God just uses him as a puppet, you know? But that's what he's doing, you see? Because this is unheard of. I mean, like, who's left? And it doesn't make a difference if you're a former ally, right? Or you're an enemy, it's irrelevant. He takes on Trudeau with Canada, you know what I'm saying? NATO, you know what I'm saying? Uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Turkey used to be an ally with the US. You know, and, and so he even, he even sort of like washed the floor with May, England. It doesn't make a difference who you are. He is in the cause which is unheard of, you see? Nobody understands what is he doing in foreign policy. He never advertised that he was going to do this, you see? But he doesn't understand. He's assigned a role, you know, not just to protect Israel and to further the cause of the Tikkun, which is what he's doing, you know? His role fundamentally is to introduce righteousness into the world. Not that he's a tzaddik, don't get me wrong, no, but he does have a sense of what is right and wrong. He's very good in that. He has a sense of fair play, you know, and he certainly has a sense of, you know, if you've been taken advantage of, you know, that certainly has, you know, and he's doing that. He, and he, has, that, he has that sense more than any present before him. No present in history took on the whole planet. You know what I'm saying? So, God, look, when God picks somebody, pick the right guy. <laughs> Think about that, you know? And I always laugh, and I laugh at the fact when they say, well, Trump, Trump, he's, you know, he's an arrogant person, he's about Taiva, he's into women, terrible, all this, right, you know? And so I laugh, I said, it's Asaph, what do you want him? Asaph, so Asaph had Taiva, Gaiva, and Miramar, you know? He's missing Miramar, he's not a fraud. That's why God picked him. And that's not the only reason, obviously, but that was his main claim to fame. That even though he's a Baltaiva, okay, so was Kennedy. So a lot of presidents that, he, that we don't hear about, that's all, you know. He is a Baltaiva. Okay, listen, you know, a guy's worth about seven, eight billion dollars. Okay, so he thinks of himself as 
and fabulous and so on. Big deal. But he's not a fraud. He's not an imposter. And that's, he's not dishonest. That's one thing you have to say about that guy, you see. One is that he's a tremendous leader, tremendous leadership ability. He'll confront anything, you know. And he's not a fraud. He's an honest guy. I'm not saying he's a tzaddik. He never lied. Of course not. Right? Even though, who's the guy? Uh, 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 George Washington, which is a, it's a, actually it's a fraud. Sure. When he cut down the cherry tree and says, I cannot tell a lie. You know, it's nonsense. Believe me, he lied who knows how many times. But, but the main idea is that he is basically a very honest person. And more than that, he has a streak of tremendous righteousness. Doesn't mean he's a tzaddik. And that's why he takes on everybody, everybody, you know, because he can see right through their, through their, uh, you know, charade and their fraudulent behavior. And that's why he's a great president. He really is. I don't care, so he doesn't act totally mature. <laughs> okay, you know, I don't mind, you know, you know, that's all. You know, so he acts, he's got problems in that, in that neighborhood, you know, but, but he's a phenomenal guy. His leadership ability is phenomenal. His ability to see what's right and wrong, tremendous, you know? And his ability to, to defy, his defiance, wow. You have to admire the guy, you see? And that's why he's probably, in terms of what he's done for America, he's probably the greatest president in history. You know, maybe Mick, maybe Washington, because he, you know, he was very honest also, he didn't want the presidency and all that. And then Lincoln and so on. You know, there are certain presidents, you know? But he's gotta be in the top, top tier. No question about that. And they hate him because Washington is a quicksand. It's a cesspool. You cannot believe, you know, if I had a dollar for every Russia in Washington, D.C., I'd be richer than Trump. If I had a dollar for every uh, Russia, you know, Russia, evil person in Washington, D.C., I'd be richer than Trump. Washington, D.C., you cannot believe the, 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 the hatred the sinner, the, the slander, the Lashon Hara, the Metzi Shemra, the Ratzicha of these people is beyond. I mean, just take a look at all these guys, what, what they try to do to them. Comey and McCabe and, and, and the DOJ, uh, Rosenstein, they, they all try to, it's all Shek of a Chazer. They try to railroad the guy for what? Hillary. These are the worst of the people and so on, you know? Uh, compared to them, he's a tzaddik. <laughs> so it's happening. He's doing his job, you know. I just hope he doesn't slip with what's coming out with Israel, exactly. the, the uh, peace plan, you know. But we don't really have to worry about the peace plan because Abbas will never sit down, never. You see, it's yeah, over. He, he could die also, though, and then somebody else will take over. Maybe he'll negotiate. What? He could, he could pass on and then somebody else could take over his spot and, and he could be Trump's boy. Last time I checked, God was in control of who lives and who dies. I don't think he's going to take him out. <laughs> you see, what you're doing is good, but here's the mistake you make. You keep thinking like a mortal man. God's running the show, not Washington. You see, you, what you're, you're right. Your, your understanding is the way most people think. It's Teva. It's nature, it's natural, you know. He could die, he could do this, he could do that, you see. But that's not the way you can figure out what's going on. You need to look from the perspective of the divine plan. Not from the perspective of what should have been. If what should have been, he should never have been president. Impossible. 
It's one of the greatest miracles of the 21st century that this man is president of the United States. You have no idea. It's a nest, Nicola, and people don't understand. Well, they know it's a nest, and they can't believe they're still they're still depressed. <laughs> you know, because you know, and they, but but it's it's one of the greatest miracles you've ever seen. A man that I, I look even in Las Vegas, even bookies wouldn't take on a bet <laughs> that he would be president. That was impossible. And yet the next day he was president, and nobody understood that. You see. Because God said, enough is enough. I don't want America to become demoralized, immoral, which was exactly what's happening. The Democrats are destroying the United States, spiritually and morality-wise, you know, and so on. The Bonsham said, I don't want this to happen to America. And what the Bonsham is doing is separating the Teuf to the Rosh you see? And that's why, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at the Teuf which is Trump, Right? And the Russia base, of, which is the, 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 the uh, Washington DC, you're literally looking at Ace of in and of itself combating itself. You see? And that's what's happening. It's satanic, you know? But like I said, uh, the time has come where the Russia base of must be destroyed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Hillary was destroyed. She's destroyed. You know? I mean, you know what it is that you, you've won every campaign and promise and political position. <coughs> right? And all of a sudden, the last thing is the prize. What's the prize? To be president of the United States. And God just takes it right out of our hand. You, you have any, we do not understand that Oynish. You can't believe the punishment that he did to her when he took away the presidency from that woman. That was her existence to be president of the United States. And with that, that means the rush of Esau, the evil of Esau, would have dominated and led the United States into a terrible pit. And God said, no, I won't do this to America. And I believe part of the reason is not just because America is Aesop, but also America has tremendous amount of merits. Foreign affairs, not, not foreign, foreign, what do you call it? Uh, um, foreign aid, yeah. Foreign aid, what they've done to the world. They give more money to countries around the world than all nations combined. It's astounding what they do. And God does not diminish, he, you know, he doesn't deny that chesed. And therefore he says, hey, you know, I got a soft spot for America. And America doesn't realize that. That's why no war was ever done except the, the Muslims, okay, that's predicted. Uh, that was the only thing ever done on American soil, really, you know, because they, they are an umash chesed. And therefore God said, Asaph's going to come back, and he's going to come back from America. And therefore you, what you are looking at now is the evil of Asaph, combating the good part of Asa, literally. It's a civil war. You think the civil war ended in 1865? No. You were looking at a civil war. But this war is not between, it's between people. It's not between the North and the South. It's between the evil of Asa, which is who? Which is the Democrats, the liberals, and all these guys, and the Turkish of Asa, which is basically the conservatives. I don't want to say Republicans, because I'm wrong with them also but the conservatives, and you're looking at it. But it's a spiritual war, you should know. The two sides of Esau are fighting each other, you know? And God uh, will not allow uh, the evil of Esau to, <coughs> to win, to be victorious. You'll see, not gonna happen. You don't bring a person so far, you know? It's like that's why one of the problems of the Jews in Egypt, you know, when they said, you know, uh, you know, 
uh, you brought us into the desert because there's no kfarim, there's no graves in Egypt, you know? Does that make any sense? Why would God do that? You know, it's hard to understand what the taina of the Dor Hamidbar was, you know? Well, why would God do literally what has never been done before? Kriya Samsuf, destroyed Egypt. I mean, it's like beyond belief. What would he do that, just temporary? Of course not. Once God has decided that the Toyf Shabbat will dominate the Rosh Shabbat, it's over. It ain't going back, as they say in English. You know, it's not going to go back. So don't worry about all the witnesses that are coming. Muller and his crew and all that stuff, you know. You know, I believe as soon as the uh, midterm elections, you know, when Trump is past that, we're going to see what he does. He'll wipe out the place. Fire everybody. Get rid of all, because then he has no, he's not, he's not afraid anymore, you know. He's going to just wipe out, clean out the DOJ, the FBI, and he probably is going to go after Hillary, Comey, McCabe, and all the other guys, you know, who are trying desperately uh, to, to, to destroy him, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what he's done already is beyond belief. If you tax, if I, you know, taxes and the regulations, the regulatory commissions and all that, uh, energy, I mean, he has changed America, literally, you know. He's changed America because America must become great, not only because they are Omushal Chesed, because if America becomes great, then if they uh, love Israel, which they show they do, then the, all the nations of the world will run to Israel because they won't want to curry favor with America. That's why America must become great for Israel's sake. And because America must confront the entire world and defend Israel. Esau and Yaakov getting together. That's what you see. You see? So you're looking at Esau. Esau is a multiple personality. There's part of them that's evil. The other part is good. And they are now in a tremendous war with each other. It's not simple to destroy the sub. It is not a simple job. But that's really what you're looking at. Forget about it here. These guys are nobodies, you know. Look at the spiritual war going on between the Tershah base and the Rosh base. And it's literally a civil war. That's what's happening. So don't worry about it. What about, uh, you, you used to say that uh, Iran, Iran's going to become a superpower and uh, challenge the whole world. Have you, has your position on that changed? Sure, I gave all shit on that. Yeah. Well, you, you still know, feel you that way? Oh, yeah, t t totally. And the reality, the, the, the reality, as I say in Yiddish, it's in The reality is, is what? They lost. The reality is worthless. You know? Uh, reality is their currency, the Iranian currency, right? And this is nothing. He, he already, uh, he already um, uh, initiated the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the sanctions, you know? But there's nothing. You wait till November. He's going to cut out the oil. Then they're really drowned. All of them. So, you, know, you know, there used to be a saying, because these people are mad. That, that's what you see. And he's already doing that. Uh, they, they, they refuse to understand that, that, is that their ability to survive is going to collapse. The Mullahs don't want to give in to Trump arrogance and how could Islam give into Christianity anyway but they're destroying themselves they're mad because by because meanwhile the Iranian people are just going under I mean it's amazing to watch the destruction of so many countries who are evil to Eretz Israel you know Iran Iraq and uh, and uh, Syria Syria Syria's a basket case Did you see Trump today announced that he's rescinding the right of return for Palestinians 
He, did he say that? Yeah. I, you should know I don't get any news. I, I, I figured he didn't see it. It just came out from the day today. They're going to rescind, publicly they're going to rescind the right of return. Say it's, Is that it's true? Only, yeah, there's only 500,000 refugees, not 500. He's right. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which president ever did that before? Nothing. You, you should know one thing. As you know, the destruction that will follow all these guys, Washington, D.C., all these evil people, liars, previous presidents, you don't even comprehend. Because they all know the truth. They all knew the truth. And they didn't care, you know. I mean, all these guys were terrible, Which you know. Which truth did they know? But is that what you're saying true? Yeah. No, they said, well, they think not the, the stories flew out today, said it'll be official announced in September. Okay. Well, uh, Russia, Sean, oh, so that's for. probably going to be a part of the announcement. Thing. Yeah, yeah, this is but a peace big plan. deal of the century. Yeah. <laughs> that there's no, what, what the century? The deal of the century. The deal of the century, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's true, you can't solve the problem with the Palestinians unless you pretty, you cannot solve a problem when Islam says that Israel belongs to Islam. It's impossible. It's over with. Because the theologically, they cannot make peace with Israel. It's, it's not a matter of, you know, uh, 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 politics. A theology like Islam cannot make peace with anybody. And if they do, it's a charade. It's Isn't false. Isn't there a statement in the Quran that Islam does belong to the Jews? Isn't there a statement in the Quran also that contradicts that? It says, I've read somewhere that there's a statement in the Quran that says Israel belongs to the Jews. You know, there are so many statements made in the Quran. I, I really don't. So there's 250 versions. Yeah, I, I've never read the Quran, so I have no idea. Yeah, there's one, but the, there's, look, there's so many statements that they hate the Jew. You know, the way it says, the tree says, come behind me and kill the Jew. But what is that supposed to mean, you know? You know, look. In the end, that's what's happening. He is doing a magnificent job. But remember, you're looking at an incredible war. You know, the, it's really the last war between the Tevish Evasive and the evil Evasive, and they are battling it out. But God is on the side of the Tevish Evasives, and the proof of that is, uh, is Trump won. It's the greatest miracle of all. I told you what happened once. I mentioned, you know, <clears throat> that. Um, uh, after Trump won the election, you know, uh, somebody came into the room, uh, Steve Bannon came into the room and started crying. Because uh, Steve Bannon was crying, yeah. Bannon is not a crybaby. And then it, right after him, five minutes later, Trump walked into the room and he started crying. Why? Because they rose to recognize that this was the hand of God. <clears throat> In fact, this guy who was there told me that it's impossible they knew it was impossible to win, and they were right, because he told me that there were many, somebody told me that there were many things that happened that made it impossible for Trump to win. I don't, I'm not familiar with them. This is what the guy told me. And then he said, in September or whatever, as time went on, everything that made it impossible for Trump to win collapsed, 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 and they couldn't believe it because they had nothing to do with it. It collapsed on its own. It's a mess. So they realized only God can do this. And that's why they were both crying. Can you believe this? Trump and then Bannon crying. You know, they saw the hand of God. And I gave a shear, which was a terrible mistake that Trump made. He should have thanked God in front of the entire world. What a chance to Makadashim Shemayim. They failed. Okay. But he's doing a great job. You know. So don't worry. Don't worry about Trump. Uh, you know, he's got the greatest protector in all creation.
God. See, that's why. Yeah, there's all kinds of fish There's no way. This guy's going to do it. He's going to testify and bring him down. He's going to do that. You're right. It, this is all Teva. But in the end, it all disappears, ultimately, you see. The Democrats, all of them are Rishonim, because they have been destroying America. Morality-wise, terrible what they've done for America. You know? Oh. I'm telling you, you know, after you come out of Washington, D.C., you got to head to a mikvah. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta go to Mikvah, it's terrible. You know, even they, they impeached Clinton, it didn't make any difference in terms of his presidency. He didn't convict everyone. Um, he considered the great president. Who, Clinton? Clinton? Yeah, I mean, you can see, even if they impeached Trump, they'll never convict him. The Senate would never convict him. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You know why they didn't convict uh, Clinton? Economy. Yeah. Right. Nobody wanted to touch the golden goose. Because the, dot, the uh, stock market, dot-coms, were doing fabulous. Of course, they, were all, they went from dot-com to dot-go, right? <laughs> but nobody wanted to touch them because nobody wanted to kill the, go the golden goose that lays the, go the goose that lays the golden eggs, you know? Same thing with Trump. Nobody going to touch him. Look at the economy. Guys are coming on with more paychecks. It's historic. It's the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And, and it's uh, in history for the Hispanics, the blacks, and the Asians. There are more jobs available than there are people who could take them. What a turnaround. Why would anybody vote for a Democrat? You know, it doesn't make sense, you know? I mean, look, even if America's retarded, which sometimes I think it is, you know, why would anybody vote for a guy like that, uh, for a Democrat? All they do is obstruct. That's all they do. They don't have one, they don't have one sensible policy statement. Everything they say is, what's wrong with Trump? And all of it is lies, you know. So why would they vote for a Democrat? It doesn't make sense, you know. You know, and for those people who vote for the, the Democrats, you know, they should all be seen by psychiatrists, because it's against human nature. Think about that. Why would a guy do that? You know, you know. And not only that, Democrats have nobody anyway to offer. There's nobody in the Democratic Party that can even touch Trump in terms of, uh, you know, uh, popularity and like that. You know, I mean, when Trump goes to a, you know, one of these uh, things, there are 20,000 people there, you know? Who, who has that among the Democrats, you know? That's why in the midterm elections, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the America will be shocked what happened. When he walked away with a complete victory, you know? So, but the main thing that we have to take away is the fact that we are nearing the end of the Iqbis of the Mashiach, which is the end right before Mashiach. The what terrorists? The Islamization and, and uh, the threat, the, the great threat, and also to Israel. And it's <coughs> spreading like a cancer all over. Why would no, no. Terrorists cannot threaten the civilized world. They try, they can't. They're getting into the school system, they're, they're really. Well, that means that's. You should know Europe is dying. Yeah, you're right. Europe is dying. That's it. You're right, you know. But listen, God says, hey, you don't want my Jews? Okay, I'll give you the Arabs. That's, it's a meter connected meter. You know, you, obviously, you don't want uh, Asiatics called Jews. I'll give you some other Asiatics. 
It's, it's destroying. You know, the birth rate is much less than the death rate in Europe. It means much less people born in Europe than there are people dying. Which means that they don't even have a replacement anymore. They can no longer replace. It's not just age. You know, it's not just that, you know, uh, most people are getting older and there's very few kids being born. That's another problem. You know, that there's more people are not getting married and all this kind of stuff. But the other problem is that the death, the death rate is far more than the birth rate. So the only way a country can survive is by immigration. You know what that means? You know, you know it's going to be the immigrants, right? It's going to be the Muslims. The Muslims never integrate into a country. That's the problem with Islam. That was the mistake that Europe made. Europe thought if they would take, you know, from North Africa, all the Muslims and all that, that they would eventually integrate into Britain and France. Never happened. Never happened. And they woke up too late. Now you have significant populations of Muslims in all the countries in Europe. Israel, so Europe in 50 years, it won't be the Europe that you know, you know? And that, that's, but that's an oinish. It's an oinish to the entire world, what they did for the Jews. You know, God said, you didn't want the Jews? Fine, I'll send you another bunch of, you know, uh, Middle Eastern, let's see how you like that. <laughs> you know, and they're gonna destroy Europe. They are destroying Europe. They are, okay. you know, you know, uh, and, and so on, you know. But we're watching different punishments. The weather, extremes in weather. You know, there's a lot of extremes in weather now, you know. And this is all, this is all ancient for the world and so on, you know. But, uh, but meanwhile, we're watching something which is fascinating, and that's the rise of Israel amongst the, among the nations. And what Israel was 40 years ago? Nothing. And today, it's like everybody wants to do business with Israel. You know, they just sold SodaStream. You know, for $3.2 billion? Wow, I would love to be the broker for that. <laughs> $3.2 billion for soda? You know? And uh, Israel is right, that's one of the biggest riots you should know, that the, that the machine is right around the corner. Because Israel has to become successful, you see, physically and economically. Yeah. Israel really is a world power. It's incredible to watch a country that has 8 million people that is a world power. It's unheard of, you know. And you know, they took a poll. Israel is the eighth greatest nation in the world. Eighth. I mean, totally, economically and militarily and so on, you know. Everybody realized that. The whole, Africa is trying to do great deals with Israel. You know, look what they are. Cybersecurity, medicine, agriculture, water conservation. Uh, it's incredible what Israel is. It's beyond belief. That's messianic. Never happened before. Israel was always on the low rung with the nations. And today, it's unbelievable where Israel is stationed, you know? And it's only eight and a half million people. Does that make any sense? There are more Zulus in Africa than there are Jews in Israel. <laughs> Think about that. The Taliban, 15 million Taliban, more, more Taliban than there are Jews. Yet Israel is the center of the world. Think about that, you know? It's not a day that goes by that Israel is not mentioned in some paper some American paper. Think about it. How's that possible? A country that has 8 million people is mentioned every day and they're always mentioned at the forefronts, you know? You think about what's going on. It's like, this is absolutely incredible, you know? And we're seeing, we're seeing the blessing of the And That's why in order to gain that credibility, America has to become great and that will make Israel great, you see? And this is all preparations for the Mashiach, you know? So this is great news that you said. 
that he said, the right of return is gone. Yeah. Oh, our Abbas must go and he went to the moon. He also took away $200 million. What was that? Who did? He's cutting the aid to the PA by two hundred million more. Two more, yeah. Boy, you know it's going to shake them up. But what? But that's actually very good because they, Abbas is now is going to say, "I'm not going to make peace with Israel," which is tremendous. I hope he doesn't make peace. Who needs this guy? Because if he makes peace, means Israel has to give him something. Who needs him? When you think about that, thank God he will not make peace. Because he's going to drop dead shortly, and the whole thing is irrelevant. So you know it's going to be a tremendous power struggle in the PA. You know why? Because they all want the money that everybody's giving them. You know, it's astounding to watch people giving these people money. For what? They all know it goes into the coffers of the corrupt people there. The Arabs don't understand. The greatest enemy of the Arab is the Arab, not the Jew. It's astounding when you think about that how poorly informed they are, you know. But look, just look around you, what's happening. What Trump is doing in what it was, a year and a half of presidency, is unheard of in, in political history. And you remember in the beginning, when uh, Trump spoke at the uh, APAC convention? Ah, they all said he's against Israel, he's no good, and this and that. You know, I thought these guys were insane. It, it just shows you how thick-headed, how dim-witted most people are. They cannot understand the MS, you know. Okay, they didn't realize that Trump is going to become president. Fine. But how can you say guys giving a speech about Israel, you know? How can you say he's no good for Israel? Where's your head? You see what I'm saying? And that's what they did. That's what they said. You can't believe these people, you know? Because most people do not have the ability to see the truth. They are so blinded by biases, you see. And, uh, and what he did is he shocks everybody. Jerusalem is the capital? It's unheard of. You know? Now Israel is legitimate. Now he takes away the, uh, the what do you call it, the returnees. Incredible. You know? Look, it's only a matter of time until Trump becomes Jewish. <laughs> Did you see the story today that you know, McCain had just died? But yeah, yeah. And, uh, all of us saw him, right? Michael Ronstein. Said, and we know when he's a friend of Israel, recounted a dinner for Lieberman when he was retiring, and uh, nobody invited McCain to speak. So Michael Warren handed him the microphone. McCain got up, he said, You know, I'm going to convert to Judaism. He so says, I'm with Lieberman all the time for Shabbos elevators, for kosher meals. I might as well just do the whole thing. <laughs> no, but I thought what he really said, listen, you know, the Jews have suffered more than any nation of mankind. And so have I. I might as well become Jewish. <laughs> right? Yeah, so no. Trump did make a mistake, but yeah, sure. he should never have for done sure. that to John McCain. Never. Of course, he's a war hero, you know. Of course, it's not that he didn't want to be captured, but it was a, he was a it was a prison for five years with those guys. Unbelievable, you know. Of course, he's a war hero, you know. It was what he planned to be captured. Okay, you know. So he, look, he forgets himself, Trump. You know, but uh, that's why uh, McCain never forgave him. Because McCain's whole claim to fame is that he was a war hero. Think about that. And so he, he injured him terribly, McCain, you know. In that sense, he was wrong. Should never have done that, you know. You know. But uh, listen, you know. You know, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, we're very close. That's what we see. We are really incredibly close. Yeah? Uh, the war 
What? I, I heard it said that according to the Torah, that a non non Jews are not allowed to live in Israel. Is that true? No. Why would that be true? I don't know. A Gatoshif can live in Israel, he's a non Jew. So what is your vision of the future of Israel and population and the idea of the line lying down the land? That's messianic. Well, in the time of the Mashiach, it says in the, the Novi that uh, ten goyim will grab onto the, uh, you know, hem of a Jew. You know, because they, they, and they'll say, we know that God is with you. Please, you know. A goyim will become groupies of Jews. That's really what happened. Listen, that's when the truth is known. Yeah, oh yeah. You have a lot of Christians returning, you know. Uh, not returning, I shouldn't say. They never left. But you have a lot of Christians that realize that their religion, in many ways, uh, is bankrupt. I mean, take a look at the scandals of the church. You see the recent thing that came out from Pennsylvania. How about the Pope? The Pennsylvania came out. They said that there's uh, six, or for them, 600 priests have been involved in this pedo, uh, in the pedophilia, you know, so, you know, it's unbelievable, you know. Yeah. Well, if you go to Europe, you know, the only ones who go to church in Europe now is the tourists. 90% of, of Europeans don't go to church anymore. Only the Europeans. Uh, the tourists, because of the beautiful windows, you know, the architecture and so on, you know. But the, the, most people are leaving Christianity in droves. I mean, they can still call themselves Christian, but there's no observance anymore. It's all with, you know. Yeah. I can't hear you. What? What about Kevin Stallion? Jeremy Corbyn is a very good threat in yeah. now. Is he going to help the Jews to leave England if he comes Prime Minister? You say that's England. What about Trump? Is Jeremy Corbyn? Well, Corbyn. Will Jeremy Corbyn become. Are, are, are Jews going to be forced to leave their countries like England and Jeremy Corbyn becomes. Um, I, I believe yes. I believe one of the ways God is going to make sure that Jews get out of their countries is the rise of tremendous anti-Semitism, which is happening all over Europe, especially France, right? It's terrible what's going on in France, you know? And even in England. And he may win. Labor may win. He's already slated to be, you know? And, he, and he's a clear anti-Semite. I don't care what he says. But what does America No, because America's Toyf Europe is Europe is... Rosh of Esau, you see, it's the evil of Esau. America is not that way. America is the Tosh of Esau, except America is battling with itself. That's what's happening, you see. Canada? Trudeau. How did he ever become prime minister? The guy before him was what's name? Stephen. He was in. He was awesome. What? Stephen Harper, yeah, yeah. You should know one thing. That's what's wrong with democracy. You know, most people are stupid. They cannot evaluate a person that is truly good for their country. That's one of the problems of democracy. It's not always true. You know, but even in America, they all wanted to vote for Hillary. Hillary destroyed America. So there you go again. That's what the problem of democracy. So thank God, is God said, listen, I know better than you. Put in Trump. And look what the difference, what he does with America now. <clears throat> Instead of thanking God and waking up to their mistake, they're still trying to destroy Trump. You, you cannot believe the evil of what, uh, of what these people in America are.
the, to the evil of Esau, you know, you know, and, and Canada also, you know, you should know all these liberal countries have that problem, you know, they're liberals, they hate <clears throat> Jews, you know, because the Jews require, look, liberals hate anybody that has a code of ethics, think about that, mm -hmm. because a liberal is the exact opposite, they can do whatever I want, don't tell me you have a code of ethics, you have rules and regulations that I have to conform to, you know? That's why every liberal automatically will hate religion, basically. Not everybody, but that's because liberalism and, and religion, which is authority, rules and regulations, is always counter to liberalism, you see? And, uh, and Canada, is very, as far as I know, is a very liberal country, so, you know? Didn't stop Trump calling Prideau, what do you call him, an idiot, something like that, you know? Yeah, what, what, what's he doing? His claim to fame is his father or his grandfather, whatever, was your prime minister, you know. But the main thing is we are watching the end. Well, ultimately, Trump's time is still over. What? Trump, one term, two terms. Ah, he's but... Bring us he's going to be away in four years, don't have time anymore. That's not true. He, uh, he, he'll win the presidency a second time, so he got another six years to go, right? But before he goes, Mashiach will be here. Don't worry. <laughs> Shia will be here before he goes. 